This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flint. Well, Margaret, just wanted to take a moment to send thoughts for the swift recovery in the Philippines. That country was devastated last week by what's believed to be the strongest typhoon on record. Almost unimaginable devastation and loss of life brought on by that act of nature, Mark. It never ceases to astonish me how vulnerable we are in the wake of such force. But uh, also, as we would have hoped, just an enormous response across the world, humanitarian aid really pouring in from all corners of the globe to assist in the recovery effort now. It really speaks to the resilience of the human spirit and our thoughts and prayers are with the country. Uh, But there's a a storm of another kind underway on these shores. The White House was pressed to release preliminary numbers from healthcare.gov last week. As expected, the numbers weren't encouraging, considering the problems that uh, continue to plague the federal exchange. That's correct, Mark. And as of last week, I believe an estimated 50,000 Americans had signed up for coverage on the federal exchange, healthcare.gov. That's only about 3% of the target. So it's a beginning, but a long, long ways to go. That it is. And while a cadre of technicians and some of the country's top coders continue to work around the clock to fix the problems uh, on the federal exchange, uh, we just won't start to see numbers of any consequences until those portals are running smoothly seven days a week, 24 hours a day. And another top White House official has been subpoenaed to testify before the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee, and that is Chief Technology Officer Todd Park. We've had Todd on the show, and uh, our Our hope is that he's weighing in on correcting some of these omissions that they've had in the design of this program. I'm sure he'll handle himself quite well. And I understand that some of the big insurance companies are uh, trying to find a way to help and work in all of this. Some are suggesting that the government should allow folks to hold off on the requirements surrounding income verification and let the customers come directly to them for support in signing up for coverage. They say that the verification piece can be worked in later once the system is fixed, but at least it would speed up the enrollment process. And of course, we're all thinking about that December 15th deadline that's up ahead. Absolutely, we are. And uh, for the moment, the Secretary of uh, Health and Human Services is sticking to her pledge to have that uh, the problem ironed out by the end of the month, and we'll see how that goes. Well, here's another interesting phenomena that's happening on the state level, Mark. Those states that opted out of expanding Medicaid are beginning to run out of safety net funds, those federal dollars that are earmarked for the poor and uninsured to get hospital care. That government subsidy to cover such care, generally known as dish payments or disproportionate Mm -hmm. share, has been greatly reduced, and now uh, that's beginning to put safety net hospitals at risk. It's really a terrible situation because also the people who, in those states who would have been eligible for Medicaid or above the guidelines, aren't eligible for the health insurance reform. So both the population in the state is being hurt and the state's health systems are being hurt. That's a very terrible situation. Well, our guest today can shed some light on this subject. Governor Stephen Bashir of Kentucky is the only governor of the southern states to have chosen to both expand Medicaid and create a state-run insurance exchange. The Kentucky exchange called Connect is being held up as a model of efficiency, and they've been signing up residents uh, there at a rate of 1,000 people a day. So it will be interesting to hear about what they've gotten right. 
And we will also hear from Lori Robertson, the managing editor of factcheck.org. But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to CHC Radio. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. Now we'll get to our interview with Kentucky Governor Stephen Bashir in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Mariano here with these healthcare headlines. 3% and counting. That's a percentage of hoped for 7 million Americans who have been able so far to sign up for health coverage on the federal health exchange, healthcare.gov. That's roughly 50,000 customers so far. The Obama administration had been jonesing for half a million by now. The problems that have plagued the site since it launched October 1st continue to confound coders and designers who've been handpicked by the White House to fix the healthcare website that serves 36 states across the nation. The problems still center on the data hub through which all applicants must be processed to link to their tax information. The administration is still targeting the end of November as their self-imposed deadline to fix the issues. On the other hand, the Medicaid expansion seems to paint a different picture across the country. 450,000 Americans have signed up for Medicaid since October 1st, especially in those states where the Medicaid expansion was initiated. About half the states in the nation have expanded Medicaid to include folks making 136 percent of poverty, although problems with the website are plaguing their experience as well. Meanwhile, mental health and substance abuse coverage are closer to being a sure bet under the Affordable Care Act. The administration just released final rules on coverage for mental health issues that will be part of the norm come January 1st. These requests are to be treated in a similar fashion as any other health claim. Meanwhile, there's more fallout from the millions of insured Americans whose policies are being canceled by their carriers. The president had promised anyone who wanted to keep their insurance would be able to, but millions of policies are being dropped primarily because they don't contain the 10 essential benefits required by the health care law. The state of California has extended canceled policies for 100,000 residents there until a workable solution can be found. And want to keep your brain healthier, longer? Brain games and quiz shows alone won't do it unless you're running in place while watching Jeopardy. Studies conclusively show that sweat equity is the great brain prophylactic. Exercise in a number of studies recently has been proven to be the most reliable brain-preserving activity, regular exercise over time that leads to sweat and aerobic increase. So off the couch with you now. I'm Mariano here with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Kentucky Governor Stephen Bouchier, a Democrat, now in his second term. Governor Bouchier is an attorney who served in the Kentucky House of Representatives, also served as the state's attorney general. He was the lieutenant governor under Governor Collins and is the past chairman of the Southern Governors Association. Governor Bouchier, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you, Mark. Uh, you've been getting quite a bit of attention since you launched Kentucky's Insurance Exchange October 1st, and you're the only governor of a southern state who chose to both set up a state-based exchange as well as expand Medicaid. And you had to do it by executive order, overriding political opposition within your own state. 
While the federal exchange has been plagued uh, with problems that have only served to fuel the partisan debate over the health care law, Kentucky's exchange called Connect uh, is being held up as a national model for success. And so you've seen thousands of residents who have been signing up daily. And can you give us a sense of how it's going and uh, is it meeting your expectations? Well, Mark, we're very proud of what Kentucky's done with its health benefits exchange. Uh, we've just had uh, resounding success far beyond our wildest dreams, quite honestly. You know, we, we worked hard, and I think we did the right things. And when we kicked it off on October 1 at 12.01 a.m., little did we know that so far we were going to have over 400,000 visitors to this website. I mean, Kentuckians have been swarming this website. Wow. We've had over 100,000 calls on our toll-free hotline into our call center. People are hungry and eager to get the information about uh, health care. We have now enrolled over 40,000, almost 41,000 people mm-hmm. in new affordable health coverage. I think an interesting statistic is that in addition to individuals, 843 small businesses have started application for mm-hmm. employee coverage. And I think that's important because, mm-hmm. as you know, a lot of misinformation is being thrown around uh, by the critics of the Affordable Care Act. And one of them is, oh, it's going to destroy business and lose jobs and all of this. Well, we're finding that our small businesses are really, you know, getting the information and going after this because they're, they find that it, it is a help. I think another interesting statistic is that 41% of our total enrollees so far are under the age of 35. Mm-hmm. And that uh, also was a, you know, one of those bugaboos mm-hmm. that the critics tossed around, oh, you're not going to get the young people to sign up, and therefore it's not going to work. Well, it is working in Kentucky, and we're excited about it. Well, Governor, uh, it would certainly seem clear that a lot of things were done right, including public education and communication and PR. And as we look at this, And I understand that the same company that created the federal exchange, CGI, was actually one of the contractors on your state's site as well. And obviously, it sounds like you've had very different experiences for the purpose of how we learn. What do you think some of the critical differences might have been between the design of the Kentucky exchange versus the federal exchange? What what made it work so well? I think part of our success uh, is the fact that early on when we got vendors in, we surrounded those vendors by our Medicaid people, our public health people, the folks that worked with these programs every day, and they worked hand-in-hand, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, to design this website. They designed a simple, straightforward website. We didn't have any real bells and whistles on it, and we tested it thoroughly. We had the federal government in several times to test it for us, and we worked those kinks out ahead of time so that when we kicked it off, uh, you know, we were able to hit the ground running, and we had uh, very few issues and problems. I think one of the key decisions we made uh, that has made a big difference is the fact that we decided to allow anybody and everybody who wanted to to go on that website and browse and get all of the information they wanted. And then At whatever point those people were ready to create an account, then they could go over and click on a button, and that would take them into that process. Quite honestly, another reason that ours was was successful is we're dealing with one state's insurance laws, whereas the federal exchange ended up having to deal with 36 different Mm -hmm. state insurance uh, statutes. 
Uh, and, of course, they're dealing with 40 or 50 million people. I'm dealing with about 650,000. But I do think that that decision about opening an account and when you had to do that was critical to our success. Well, I think it's, it was brilliant because we are a country of browsers, and we <laughs> like to you know shop around, kick the tires on things, and check it out. You know, you've gotten uh, quite a bit of attention from your recent op-ed piece uh, you wrote in the New York Times, and it was a it was a great one. And you admonished detractors uh, trying to derail the Affordable Care Act simply for political reasons, and it really struck a chord with with us. You know, we've been in the trenches providing services to the underserved population for decades, and like you, we we see this benefit of of uh, populations having access to affordable health coverage. And you say, though, the health care law makes sense not only from a population health standpoint, but from a moral one as well. And uh, you went even so far in your op-ed piece to tell the opponents of the health care to get over it. So tell us a little bit about the reaction. And, you know, from that point, uh, uh, on reflection, any other thoughts that you might have for our listeners? You know, when I, I look at Kentucky, our health statistics are awful. And that didn't just happen yesterday. Mm-hmm. I mean, they've been awful ever since they started keeping statistics. And I knew that to really make a transformational change, we had to have some kind of transformational tool. Uh, we couldn't do it just by inches. We had to really tackle this thing and to Uh, and to really make huge changes. The Affordable Care Act gave me that opportunity, Mm -hmm. and we seized on that opportunity. We've got 640,000 Kentuckians that don't have any affordable health coverage. And obviously, from a moral standpoint, if I could do something that would finally get those folks for the first time in Kentucky's history to have affordable health coverage and to be able to say for the first time in our history that every single Kentuckian now has access to affordable health coverage, then it was something I was going to do. And that, that's the mission we're on. You know, uh, when I hear the critics complaining about this, uh, what I want to say to them is, look, Those 640,000 people in Kentucky, they're not some group of aliens from a foreign planet or something. Mm -hmm. These are our friends and our neighbors. Mm -hmm. These are people we go to church with. We shop in the grocery with them. Uh, We go to the football and basketball games, sit in the bleachers on Friday night and, and watch our kids play ball. And these are people that will make a huge difference in our state. There are people that get up every day and roll the dice hoping and praying they don't get sick. Mm -hmm. They know that they are one bad diagnosis away from bankruptcy. And think of living with that 24 hours a day, seven days a week, when you're Mm -hmm. trying to raise your family and give them the quality of life that that they deserve. You know, if we can remove that burden and we can provide affordable health coverage for everybody in this state, what a great state we're going to have in the next generation. Amen. Well, Governor, I don't know that uh, anybody has said it better yet, so thank you uh, for saying it so eloquently. And, and, you know, you just spoke really to uh, the economics of the situation as well. And you've said that expanding coverage to over 600,000 uninsured residents in Kentucky will have multiple economic benefits. And I understand that you had Price Waterhouse and other analysts do a comprehensive audit to try and really sort of nail down what is the potential economic impact of taking these actions of expanding Medicaid, setting up the exchange. Tell us about the results of uh, these findings and why you think so many other states didn't come to the same conclusion. Well, first of all, I think it will happen. 
But I think that uh, down the road, the people of those states are going to drive their politicians to make them make the right decision. You know, it was an easy decision from one standpoint. It is the morally right thing to do. But, you know, as a governor, I've got another part of that decision to make, and that is, is it fiscally responsible for Mm -hmm. me to make this decision? Because if, if I make this decision... Uh, and it puts us into bankruptcy or puts us into a bad situation mm-hmm. economically, then I've done a disservice long-term to my state also. So before I made the decision, I asked PricewaterhouseCoopers and the Urban Institute over at UofL, I said, do an economic analysis of this for me. They came back after about six months, looked me in the eye and said, Governor, you cannot afford not to do this. Mm-hmm. It will infuse about $15 billion into your economy over the next eight years. You're going to create about 17,000 new jobs over the next eight years. When I look at other states that aren't doing this, unfortunately, I see politics standing in the way. And my message to them would be the same message I'm giving to, to Kentuckians. I say, look, you don't have to like the president. You don't have to like me. Because this is not about the president, and it's not about me. It's about you. It's about your family. It's about your kids. So do me a favor. It's not going to cost you a dime to go on that website, call that telephone number, or sit down with a connector and find out what's available for you. And I'll guarantee you when you do that, you're going to like what you find. I've got 4.3 million people to take care of and to try to improve their quality of life. And here is a, a historic opportunity that every state has to do exactly that. Every state is going to be doing this because the people of that state are going to put the pressure on and force political leadership to step up. We're speaking today with Kentucky Governor Stephen Boucher, a Democrat now in his second term. Governor Boucher is an attorney who served in the Kentucky House of Representatives. Uh, Governor, uh, speaking of uh, politics, you're the only governor of a southern state expanding Medicaid and setting up an exchange. But you also have two of the most vociferous opponents of Obamacare representing Kentucky in Congress, Senators uh, Mitch McConnell and uh, Rand Paul, both who've been actively involved in the recent government shutdown in an attempt to thwart the health care law and you recently said the states are really where the rubber meets the road. Uh, what sort of impact have the, has the shutdown, the farm bill not being passed, and the sequester cuts had on the health of your state? Well, Mark, first of all, I like to say that Kentucky is one of the few places in the country where democracy apparently still works. Yep. Obviously, our campaigns are like all campaigns. They're rough and tumble, and we go at it. And so we do something unusual. We act like adults. You know, that's really the bottom line here is, is you've got to bring people, that to Washington. <laughs> you know, if, if Washington would just look at how we are all looking at them. Absolutely. I mean, the, the people of Kentucky are disgusted with what's mm-hmm. going on mm-hmm. in Washington, Republican and Democrat so, alike. Yeah. And it is time to quit acting like a bunch of spoiled children. We don't agree on everything. We also know that to move the state forward, we've got to work together. You know, this shutdown was crazy, and we all know that. Mm-hmm. I think the only people who don't know it are the ones that are still in Washington, D.C. <laughs> uh, the rest of the country knows how nutty that was. Uh, not having a farm bill, and how, how many more years mm-hmm. are we going to go without a farm bill? Mm-hmm. Agriculture is a huge part of our economy. These sequester cuts, all of this across-the-board kind of thing, doesn't make any sense. Yes, we need to get our budget in balance. You know, in Kentucky, we have to have a balanced budget. 
And so for the last five years, I have balanced and rebalanced our budget during this worst recession of mm-hmm. our lifetime about uh, 12 times now. Mm-hmm. I've cut $1.6 billion out of spending in our state, which for a small state is a lot of money. Yeah. But we did it in a smart way. We set our priorities. We said education is the most important thing we do here in Kentucky mm-hmm. and where our money ought to be invested. So we prioritized our, our budget balancing. And because of that, we're coming out of this recession, I think, a lot better off and a lot faster than a lot of other states are. Well, Governor, uh, there's another uh, area of transformation we're curious about uh, relative to what Kentucky is accomplishing, and that's in the area of biotechnology, which obviously is poised to have a powerful impact on the kind of health care that we have in the future. Now, I understand uh, the publication Fast Company ranked Kentucky second in the nation in the number of startups created in the past few years, and that many of those were in the biotech area. So clearly, some robust activity in your state. How does this all tie together with the changes under the Affordable Care Act? Well, we're very proud of what we're doing economically here. As I mentioned, we're coming out of this recession, I think, uh, a lot faster than a lot of other places. Uh, in addition to the to the facts that you mentioned about uh, being second in the nation in the number of startups created in the past few years, last year we were second in job growth rate in the country also, and we've had record exports for last year, and now we're going to exceed that for this year. So part of that, uh, Margaret, is you have to have an educated workforce. And so we've made a priority of education reform in Kentucky, and I'm happy to say that in that area also, we're 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 setting the the uh, the mark of excellence across this country. You know, we were the first state to adopt the Common Core academic standards. We're the second mm-hmm. state to adopt the national science, the next generation national science standards. Mm-hmm. We just raised our dropout age from 16 to 18 here in Kentucky. So we're really on the move in educating our people, and that all comes down to what's going to happen in the future here because. As much as companies that we talk and uh, try to attract to Kentucky want tax incentives Mm -hmm. and infrastructure and roads and all of these things, their priority, uh, 99 out of 100 CEOs tell me that their biggest priority is an educated workforce. I've got to have an educated Mm -hmm. workforce. And so that's what we're working on. And you know what? If you've got an educated workforce, but they are homesick all the time, or they're home with their kids because they're sick and they can't take them to the doctor, if they don't get the prevention and wellness benefits out of affordable health coverage, then they're not a productive workforce. Your business folks, the smart ones, and that's most of them, know that the bottom line is a productive workforce, and they know that you can't have that unless you have a healthy workforce. So it has been, it's been exciting to see what I think we're going to do Uh, because of the Affordable Care Act in developing that healthier workforce, which is just going to help us to attract more biotech firms. It's going to help us to attract firms of every kind and and character uh, because we're going to have the kind of workforce they're looking for. Governor, another emergent area Era, area in uh, health innovation is really in the health information technology area. And we've seen a huge uh, push in promoting uh, the expansion of health IT. We've had many uh, folks on from around the country t- talking about the investments they've made uh, under the High Tech Act. And uh, while we still have a long way to go, uh, you've made it clear the Affordable Care Act is going to have a huge impact. And you've talked about that today very eloquently about the uh, on the overall uh, health ranking 
for your state uh, by improving access. Um, but what role does health IT play in your long-term goals uh, for Kentucky? And what vision do you have for a connected health IT system linking uh, various health entities in your state? It's going to play a very big role, I think, in the future of healthcare in Kentucky. Uh, and we are being very aggressive in e-health initiatives. We created legislation uh, to create an e-health network. And at that time, only <coughs> excuse me, a handful of providers uh, were storing health information electronically. Uh, but we have pushed the development of that, and hundreds of hospitals, physician practices, optometrists, uh, labs, other medical facilities are now members of what we call the Kentucky Health Information Exchange. We currently have about 400 providers live on that health information exchange and another 450 in the process of connecting or signed to a user agreement establishing some kind of formal relationship between the facility and the Commonwealth of Kentucky. So we, we see uh, the, the health information uh, system and, and initiatives as a, an integral part of the future of successful and affordable health care in the Commonwealth. We've been speaking today with Kentucky Governor Stephen Bashir. To learn more about the Kentucky Health Exchange and how it's working, you can go to connect.kentucky.gov, and I'm going to spell that out. That's K-Y-N-E-C-T dot K-Y dot gov. And you can learn more about the governor's administration by going to governor.ky.gov. Governor Bashir, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today. Mark, Margaret, thank you all very much for having me. At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Well, President Obama has faced criticism recently for promising if you like your health care plan, you can keep your health care plan. But we've been saying for years that he can't make that promise to everyone. Reality is catching up to his political spin. Several recent news reports have focused on Americans who purchased their own insurance on the individual market and who have received cancellation letters for their plans. The insurers say the plans won't meet the essential benefit standards required by the Affordable Care Act. That includes prescription drug coverage, maternity care, mental health benefits, and more. These individual market plans will cover more, but at higher premiums. About 15 million Americans, or 5% of the population, buy insurance on this market. Plans purchased before the law was passed could be grandfathered in and therefore not subject to these new requirements, but they can't change significantly or they're no longer grandfathered. We've said the president can't make that promise to those with comprehensive employer-sponsored coverage either. We first wrote about Obama's claim in August 2009 when the law was still being debated. We cited an analysis by the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office that estimated 3 million people with employer plans wouldn't be offered coverage. Some employers may send low-wage workers onto the exchanges for insurance rather than continuing to provide it themselves. 
Trader Joe's recently announced that's what it would do, sending part-time workers to the exchanges along with $500 to help them buy coverage. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, Managing Editor of FactCheck.org. FactCheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have FactCheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Right now, there are about three and a half million people living in refugee camps around the world. Whether displaced by wars or natural disasters, the plight of these people is often the same, living in squalid conditions in tent cities that provide little protection from harsh elements. And these conditions pose serious threats to their health and well-being. The IKEA Foundation has taken the parent company's wildly successful do-it-yourself approach to home furnishings and applied it to the problem of inadequate housing for displaced refugees. They've created a do-it-yourself dwelling that can be shipped and assembled anywhere. So first and foremost, there's the uh, very well-known flat pack approach that IKEA has pioneered. Secondly, the materials and the product itself. So it's a shelter. It's not a tent. Jonathan Spampanato is the head of communications and strategic planning at the IKEA Foundation. They're working closely with United Nations organizations working on the ground, trying to assist refugees in Somalia and other parts of the world. We extended that to also include funding for an innovation unit within the UNHCR so they could think more long term. So providing that funding allowed them to start the refugee uh, housing shelter, looking at how to design a better shelter. And since on average a person is likely to spend up to 12 years in a refugee camp, these IKEA structures have some unique properties that can make the experience more bearable. The walls and the the roof are made out of a, a new fancy version of basically a plastic material that is much more durable but very, very lightweight and still is insulated. The IKEA Foundation currently has prototypes being tested in various refugee camps and will scale up production once refinements are made. And, true to IKEA, the price point is going to come in under $1,000 per structure, a deliverable, affordable, do-it-yourself dwelling that can provide some sense of dignity, privacy, and protection for families who are struggling as refugees. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcasts from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.